This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Number one. No more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. That was President Joe Biden in a 2020 presidential debate with Senator Bernie Sanders. But those stated climate goals don't exactly align with his administration's approval of the Willow Project. It allows ConocoPhillips to drill for oil in the National Petroleum Reserve. That's on Alaska's northern slope. ConocoPhillips says they'll produce 180,000 barrels of oil per day. The company wanted permission for five new oil pads. The Department of Interior only gave them three. But that didn't stop protesters from speaking their minds. Biden, keep your promise. Stop fossil fuels. Be the climate president. You have betrayed the people and we will not stop until you've revoked your decision on Willow. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Environmental groups say these new wells will be a carbon bomb. But what does that mean? We get into it after the break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's start by bringing in Nicholas Kuznets. He's an oil and gas reporter at Inside Climate News. That's a nonprofit newsroom that covers climate, energy, and the environment. Nick, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Also with us, Joshua Rhodes. He's a research associate at the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin. Joshua, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We also invited the Department of Interior to join us, but they didn't make anyone available. Joshua, why are critics calling the Willow Project a carbon bomb? Well, anytime that we, you know, burn fossil fuels, um, we emit carbon into the atmosphere. And so the estimates from the, uh, from, from the administration estimate that, you know, the 600 million barrels that are produced from the Willow Project will end up producing, all, will end up putting about 
280 million tons of CO2 into the into the atmosphere. The Department of Interior has jurisdiction over the National Petroleum Reserve. Here's Interior Secretary Deb Holland on the decision. These are existing leases issued by previous administrations as far back as the 90s. As a result, we had limited decision space, but we focused on how to reduce the project's footprint and minimize its impacts to people and to wildlife. So, Nick, how meaningful is that reduction, improving only three oil pads instead of five? Well, it it does reduce the surface impact, I mean, somewhat substantially, right? That's 40% less surface area. Um, So rather than drilling all these wells from five different locations, they'll be limited to three locations. That also means um, a little bit less roads, you know, gravel and ice roads that are made for the project, uh, fewer miles of pipelines to connect all of these things. Um, And it has less impact in this particularly sensitive area where one of those well pads still will be located. Um, But in terms of the climate impacts, it's it's not very large. So the company will still be able to access more than 90% of the oil that they're targeting. Um, so in, in that sense, it's, it's kind of a small difference. Joshua, how much oil can come out of a single oil drilling pad? Well, it really depends on the geography or the geology and kind of, um, you know, the rock and, 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 and how, what underlies the, the oil drilling pad. But I mean, you know, this, this project is expected to produce about 600 million barrels total, you know, 180,000 um, per day. And so if that's spread over the three, then... You know that's roughly 200 million. You know per, um, you know per well over over the lifetime. But some of them may produce more. Some may produce more, and some may produce a bit less. So while the project has been approved, Joshua, how long will it take for it to actually go online and produce oil? Well, these projects take a while. It um, there's generally this kind of uh, well, it it. it these projects do take a while. There's probably going to be years before oil is actually flowing. They're going to have to go in and develop the area, put in the pads, put in the pipelines. And they only have a limited amount of time to do that because they're because of how far north this is, they're only actually going to be able to do operations when there's been a hard frost, when the ground is basically frozen so that they can you know, get these heavy trucks and equipment in there. And so they can only work a few months per year. And that will depend on you know, how long it stays cold per year versus when they'll be able to do it. But it's going to be years before, um, before they would actually be able to recover any oil. And there still yet will probably be lawsuits that may even you know, keep that, keep that st- starting point. Um, for for not happening for a few years, too. Nick, the National Petroleum Reserve was created in 1923 as an oil reserve for the U.S. Navy on Alaska's northern coast. Later, it was transferred to the control of the Bureau of Land Management that's now under the Department of Interior. How common is it to drill on public land? Well, across the country, it's quite common. Um, A little less than a quarter of the oil and gas produced in the country comes on public lands and waters. So that includes offshore drilling, like in the Gulf of Mexico, where there's a lot of oil production. So most of this happens out west and, you know, in the western U.S. and the lower 48. Um, Up in Alaska, most of the oil production has been on state or private land. And um, this petroleum reserve, while it does, it was set aside for oil, has not had extensive development. 
And when we look at Alaska more broadly, how common is oil drilling there? So Alaska has a long history of oil production. The Prudhoe Bayfield um, has been in operation for decades, and it was a huge oil find um, when it first started operating decades ago. Production has been declining, um, but oil revenue uh, from that has been really important to the state, both to the sort of state revenues and then individual Alaskans even have gotten money directly from that. Um, but as I said, the production has been in the decline for a while. And so uh, some people in the state and certainly some of the oil companies that operate there and ConocoPhillips is one of the big ones, which is the company behind Willow, they've been pressing to expand into new areas, um, and the Willow would be the biggest example of that. And one reason that's important is there's this big pipeline, um, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which brings the oil, all of the, the vast majority of this drilling, the, the Willow Project, the Prudhoe Bay, it's all up at the very northern part of the, the state, up by the Arctic Ocean. And so the pipeline brings the oil all the way to the south. And because the production's been in decline, that pipe, there's less and less oil going through the pipeline uh, to the point where it's going to be hard to sort of keep it up at some point. And so the Willow Project would really significantly increase that. I mean, just this project at its peak would increase the state's production by about 40% from what it is now. Well, there's been a lot of opposition to this project nationally and from the communities that live next to the National Petroleum Reserve. We heard a bit earlier from a 2020 presidential primary debate where President Biden said, quote, no more drilling on federal lands. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre talked about the approval last week. Look, the president kept his word when he uh, where he can where where he can by law, right? Uh, that is important to note. Uh, and uh, as the Interior Department said, some of the company's leases are decades old, granted by prior administrations. The company has a legal right to those uh, leases. The department's options are limited when there are legal contracts uh, in place. Nick, what are the legal obligations the press secretary is referring to? So it's important to say that there is debate over this whole um, space and sort of what they are and are not able to do legally. But, I mean, broadly speaking, um, there's, there's wider agreement that the administration is, you know, has, has the space legally to deny leases. Um, but there's more debate over what they can do legally once a lease has already been granted. Um, and that's the case with Willow, where, as she said earlier in the program, some of these leases, you know, date back to the 90s. Um, so the companies and, you know, a number of analysts have argued basically once that lease is, is made, um, the administration either can't or ever can only um, prevent drilling under a very limited set of circumstances. And certainly, I think there was concern in the administration that if they rejected the project at this point, they would face lawsuits um, that at the very least would bring them into the courts and potentially force the administration to pay ConocoPhillips um, sort of for the the deny, you know, denying the right to exploit that oil. At the same time, Joshua, you said it's likely these approvals will face lawsuits against the start of drilling. Just briefly explain what arguments are likely to come out of those lawsuits. Well, there are 
some some advocates will um, will argue more about that the you know the administration didn't take climate change uh, the climate change impacts in uh, enough into account when when looking at um, when looking at the impacts even though they did quantify the amount of CO two um, you know there's there, there are as, as you said earlier there's no there's no shortage of, of folks who are who are against this project so there and there there's always ways of arguing in stays and things like that in the in the legal system. Um, and there's going to be lots of folks who are going to want to try to, uh, you know, delay this as long as can. Well, we have to take a quick break. But next, we speak to Nagruk Hacharek. He says the project will positively impact the northern slope. We hear why after this. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this clip from CNN of some native Alaskans. They traveled to the White House to protest the Willow Project. They're, they're talking in Alaska. This will be an economy for 30 years, like they're all gleeful. and They don't live there. What I think we're fighting for the most is to have our voices heard and for people to see the effects and to really come to the truth that we can't afford to burn fossil fuels any longer. Leaders of the Nuiqsut tribal village are also not on board. They released a 10-page public statement outlining their concerns about the effects the Willow Project will have on the community. But not all tribal communities are against the project. Nagruk Harcherek thinks the project will be a boon for Native communities. He's president of the Voice of the Arctic in Yupiat. That's a network of tribal communities in Alaska, including the North Slope. Nagruk joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you grew up in Utkiavik. That's a community on the northern slope surrounded by the National Petroleum Reserve. Why do you think this will be good for that community and others on the slope? The economic benefits that a project like this provides through the North Slope Borough's ability to tax infrastructure um, has allowed for the um, introduction of, of, and, and of uh, first world living conditions in all of the communities on the North Slope that um, you know, a generation ago didn't exist, right? We have running water and sewer. Um, we have a search and rescue department. We have a Department of Wildlife Management that manages all of our subsistence resources, does research, um, provides jobs in the communities um, to provide those services that, that might not otherwise be there. So the, the economic benefits that a project like this um, would, would allow us to sustain those conditions in the communities um, for at least the next generation. Now, the voice of the Arctic and Yupiat, the organization you represent, it was established to be a unified voice for your region and people, according to your website. But as we heard earlier, some of the Inupiat people in the village of Nuiqsut are against this drilling project. One of their concerns is how will it will affect the migration of the caribou that the people of Nuiqsut need for subsistence hunting. They also uh, mention concerns over air pollution. How has the voice of the Arctic and Yupiat considered those concerns from the Nuiqsut residents? So the, the North Slope Borough um, 
You know, and then the org- just a little bit about The Voice. We have 24 member organizations from across the slope from the various villages. Um, and we voted, or the board voted unanimously to support Willow. Um, and so that, that allowed me to kind of take the reins, so to speak. Um, but with respect to the to the concerns, you know, and I wouldn't want to discredit anybody's concerns, but the North Slope Borough has been doing research on the caribou populations on that specific herd um, for a, a long time now. Um, and just in a recent presentation, the uh, population of that Teshkapuk caribou herd is what it's called, has been on the rise over the last few years. Um, it's nearing um, historic highs. And they also do research on the um, subsistence harvest uh, from different communities on the North Slope and Nooksit being one of those. And the subsistence harvest of the caribou hasn't actually been um, in decline um, over the years. Uh, you know, another interesting story is the village of Unoktuvuk Past, which is in the southern North Slope, um, uh, over the last few years have been flying their hunters uh, to Nooksit uh, to actually hunt caribou because the migration of um, hasn't been passing the village of Unoktuvuk Past. Um, so they're actually shipping their folks up to Nooksit to hunt and then shipping that meat. Um, back to um, Unoktuvuk Pass to fill their freezers. But, but I want to bring in, in Nicholas here really briefly, because Nicholas, as I understand the concerns of uh, the New Ixic resident, it's that the construction and development of the Willow Project will actually interrupt some of these migration patterns. Am I hearing that correctly? That's correct. And so part of um, part of this is, has to do with where the project is going to be built. So... Um, the, as I mentioned, there's, a, there's an existing ConocoPhillips project that is actually a little closer to the village of Nuixit, but it's to the north. Willow would be out to the west, and so it would be the farthest west of any oil development in the region. It would be pushing the frontier sort of into a new area. And that new area is getting close to this Tshekpuk Lake, as uh, Nagruk mentioned. And um, the lake is important. I mean, it's not just for caribou, also for... Um, millions of migratory birds. Um, But it's getting close into calving grounds for the caribou and kind of into the corridor of the migration. Um, So the concern exactly is that what's now open, open grounds and open areas for the hunting, uh, uh, sorry, for the, for the migration would be disrupted. I mean, and and another concern I've heard from people I spoke with in Nuixit is that the development, again, because it's to the West would push the, the caribou farther away from the village so that um, when people do go to hunt, they're going to have to travel farther. Um, and, you know, where it might now be a few miles, it could be 30, 40 miles, which, you know, this is not, there's no roads, or the, the roads are not, uh, you know, kind of paved roads like here. It's very spongy ground when it's not frozen. Um, and w- one other point to add, and Correct me if I'm wrong, Nagruk, but I believe just an important point to add, he had mentioned that there was a unanimous vote in favor of the project, but I believe that Nuixit is not a member of The Voice, so, uh, and the Nuixit has kind of stood apart with village leaders opposing the project. They've sent letters to the BLM, um, you know, asking for the project to be rejected or at least um, further limited beyond what the final one and by the approved. by the BLM you mean the Bureau of Land Management Nagruk, is that accurate that the new Ixit is not a member of your organization 
Yeah, but you know, there's there's three organizations that represent the the population in Nooksit. You have the the city government, you have the tribal organization, and then you have the local village corporation, um, the Alaska Native Corporation, and the the Cookbeak Corporation, which is their Alaska Native Corporation, has actually expressed their support of of the project as well. But if these concerns are realized, that the construction of the Willow Project disrupts migration patterns, that it affects subsistence farming, that it affects residents' health. How will you respond to those issues if they arise? We we are continually monitoring, as we you know, as I mentioned, the the subsistence activities, the health monitoring, and I think as we go along, uh, moving forward, we're going to do what we can to to try to mitigate um, as as much as we can um, any any negative impacts to the communities um, on the North Slope, and and try to maximize whatever opportunities we can um, to improve the quality of life in those communities through the reinvestment of the dollars that the North Slope Borough is going to receive um, through taxation. And once the construction process begins, what could those mitigation efforts look like? Um, I I think it's spelled out in the uh, SEIS. I mean, they're already limiting the pads down down to three from five. We've been a part of the um, planning process for um, the various organizations on the North Slope for quite some time. They had to um, base, uh, go to the North Slope Borough Assembly to get this area rezoned, right? So a lot of the concerns that, that folks might have had um, have been addressed throughout the process, um, you know, getting through permitting and, and all of that. Nagrook, the people of New Exit also expressed concerns over the Bureau of Land Management's communication with them as they permit construction. How important is coordination between developers and the local community? I, I think it's extremely important. Um, in my experience, it's uh, to me, it seems like the communication has been um, um, sufficient. I mean, it, we've, we've, like I said, with the North Slope Borough, they, they, when they were first um, uh, when they first were created, they, they zoned everything on the North Slope as a conservation district, which forces uh, projects like this to engage with the North Slope Borough Zoning Commission and Planning Department, as well as the Assembly, to get it rezoned to a, uh, you know, to a commercial or industrial um, so that they could build the project. So the, the communication has been there for, for a long time because they had, to, they had to be able to sell it to the local municipal government in order for them to rezone it um, and address any concerns that anybody had. Earlier in the show, we heard from protesters critical of those supporting this project. They say they don't actually live in the communities that will be most affected by the environmental impacts. And and you live in Anchorage now, which is on the south side of Alaska. So for people who are living close to these projects who say these decisions are being made without understanding of how it's going to affect our lives, and that doesn't seem fair, how do you respond to those concerns? I was born and raised and spent 36 years of my life in Barrow. I, I've seen the benefits that comes from uh, projects like this. I remember growing up when, uh, you know, our, our flush toilet was installed in our home. Um, I did not have the luxury of the chore of, of taking the honey bucket and, and putting it outside and on the street for pickups, thankfully, because of um, because of that. So I've, I've, I've seen the benefits from you know, water and sewer systems to the schools that I, I grew up going to, um, the search and rescue department that the North Borough has. I've, I've been on a few uh, rescues myself, um, being out on the ice and whaling when, when we have a, the shore fast ice break off, right? Um, I've, I've seen the benefits. I've grew up with the benefits. My, my friends and family 
um, and some of the different villages have um, kind of the same story. Um, so it, it's definitely the benefits are not lost on me um, as, as far as the economic benefits that have allowed us to, that have enhanced our, our ways of life or even our subsistence ways of life, right? Folks in the villages have jobs through the North Slope Borough. They're able to um, afford to buy snowmobiles and boats. Um, and they're also able to afford to put fuel in those snowmobiles and those boats to go out on the land to be able to hunt the um, to be able to hunt the animals and, and fill their freezers uh, to be able to feed their families for months. When you know the same hundred dollars, you go to the store, you could probably feed your family for a couple of days. I just want to be clear for our audience: you you mentioned growing up in Barrow. That's uh, another name for Utkiagvik. Uh, I just want to make that clear. You talk about the benefits, but. There's also pushback against the global impacts of this project. We know more oil and gas production is counterproductive to slowing down global warming. So why do you think this project is worth the climate costs, both to Alaska and just to the world as a whole? Well, I think the the question that comes to mind when when that gets asked is, uh, you know, even Biden said it himself, we're going to need the resource for another another 10 years. I I think it's going to be longer than that as we transition, right? So... Then the question becomes, where do we get the resource? Do we do it in within our borders? Do we do it on the North Slope, where we can control the environmental um, environmental conditions, where we can where we could reap the benefits locally on the North Slope within the state of Alaska, within the United States, as far as energy security, national security, or do we outsource that responsibility to other countries and continue to lift sanctions on countries like Venezuela, um, Saudi Arabia, and Im- import um, you know those resources? Um, I, I just think. Doing it at home in our own backyard with all of the environmental controls that we can put into place is, is, is more responsible as far as the global climate is concerned. That's Nagruk Hacharak. He's president of the Voice of the Arctic in Yupiat. That's a network of tribal communities in Alaska, including the North Slope. Nagruk, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Our listener, Philip, had this to say. Though I don't like the idea of new drilling for oil, one must understand the world we live in. Oil is used as a weapon and we need to protect ourselves and our allies from pressure from the likes of Putin and Saudi Arabia. And Jerry says, doesn't buying oil from other parts of the world actually do more harm to the environment since a lot of the rest of the world has less environmental regulations and because of the transportation of the oil to the U.S.? Joshua is there a difference? I mean, there is something to the to the um, you know there is something to the fact that you know we can have you know tighter um, you know regulatory controls over oil um, that is produced in our in our own country. That is not to say we still don't have accidents and issues. We have pipeline leaks. We have um, you know rail cars that um, that go down and um, and leak you know various chemicals and, and and oil. And you know some of the most famous oil disasters, the Exxon Valdez, also happened with U.S. you know U.S. infrastructure and in, in, in Alaska. So it, it it doesn't mean that there will not be issues, but there is something to the fact that you know there are other countries that you know when they produce. Um, you know, when they're producing oil, there's not as stringent environmental uh, controls there. Um, some countries are much worse. And some countries are actually a bit better, too. We got this question, well, this comment from Jan, who says, as long as consumers buy fossil fuels, there will be those who continue to produce them. If there is not a market for oil, they won't drill. Joshua, how have you seen the supply-demand debate evolve in the U.S.? 
Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, you know, the biggest ways to reduce carbon emissions is to, uh, is to do things like electrify transportation where the, in the vast bulk of, you know, the petroleum that, uh, the U S consumes, which is about, you know, 20 million barrels per day, um, you know, goes towards the transportation sector. And so, you know, if we're, if we're able to reduce demand by substituting, you know, different sources of energy, um, in this case, electricity for, you know, gasoline or diesel oil products, um, then we, we could reduce, you know, demand for oil. And then we probably wouldn't be, um, you know, exploring as much. We would probably just, you know, tap out some of the existing resources that we already have um, that are a little easier to access. President Biden has marketed himself as a climate president. The Inflation Reduction Act set aside up to $7,500 in tax credits for people who buy electric vehicles. People who install solar in their homes are also eligible for a 30% tax credit. Nick, that tackles consumer demand for fossil fuels, but how is the Biden administration dealing with the supply side? Well, so there is this um, sort of almost academic argument about economics that I want to get into on that. But before that, I think it's important to kind of step back and remember the, keep the global picture in mind, which, which is particularly important with the Willow Project. So on, a, on this global scale, the science is telling us that um, there's too much fossil fuels. Uh, you know, we, we, if we burned all of the existing reserves, we would blow past global climate goals. So we need to essentially leave some of that in the ground. So in that context, knowing that we can't burn all the oil we've found, um, then again, on a global level, there's a question of like, well, what oil do we burn? Um, And part of why I think so many people have been really opposed to the Willow Project is they're saying this is exactly the type of oil we leave in the ground, right? This is a really fragile, sensitive ecosystem. It's largely wilderness, an undeveloped ecosystem. You know, there's existing oil fields in Texas and Saudi Arabia that are really well developed, and that's the oil we should be using, not this new project in the Arctic. Um, But on the supply-demand side, you know, there has been this long kind of discussion in the climate policy and advocacy world about what's the most effective way uh, to address this core concern of, of not burning fossil fuels, right? Is it as Josh was talking about, like, you know, keeping the, you know, transitioning to electric vehicles and replacing uh, gas power plants with wind and solar, for example, or do you tackle the supply, deny projects? Um, and this, this whole debate got um, a lot of wind in its sails from this movement that really started around the Keystone XL pipeline uh, during the Obama administration. And that was the whole idea then. We can't afford to burn the oil that this pipeline will allow to be pumped out of the ground. Um, and so the Biden, as, as you started the show, Biden as a candidate said he was going to do this, right? He, that he was going to uh, end new oil and gas development on public lands, which is really the only parts, you know, only areas where the federal government has direct control. Um, but through lawsuits and, um, you know, a lot of pushback, they've basically, you know, walked away from that pledge. Let's get to some of your questions. Stephen says, with people transitioning to electric vehicles, and if there will be years before any oil is extracted from Willow, might the oil field be obsolete before all the oil is extracted? Joshua? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, while we are transitioning to electric vehicles at a at um at a at a pretty good clip, we're not really moving you know fast enough into to even if this even if this project is delayed by um you know it's delayed by multiple years, we're probably still going to be consuming quite a bit of oil. And just to put the the project in a bit of context, you know, 600 million barrels of oil total. The U.S. consumes about 20 million barrels per day. It's kind of small in the fact that it's only a 30 day supply of total U.S. oil. But if you take all of that, you know, assuming 70 dollars a barrel, which is roughly what oil's you know um, trading at today, that's about 42 billion dollars. So it's big in that in that in that space, right? So oil's is is big money. You know, we we're consuming 20 million barrels per per day, and you know. We, you know, the, the move to electric vehicles will impact that significantly. But until we have, you know, almost all Americans driving them, which is going to take a while um, to do, it takes a while for fleets to turn over and things to, um, you know, and things to to change. I will say I'm 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 heartened that there is a EV tax credit for for used vehicles for used electric vehicles because we need to get electric vehicles down to those who, you know, those lower income groups who don't necessarily buy new vehicles. Historically, it's, you know, the tax credits have just been, honestly, probably for those people who could have already afforded to buy the car anyways. Um, And so if we can continue to push those vehicles through, um, through the fleet as it turns over, like, um, that's a a more equitable way of of doing this, getting, you know, getting that cleaner transportation in, in more hands. Let's go back to our voice inbox. Regarding drilling, we need to do it carefully because uh, we we need fuel oil to uh, heat our homes, to plant our crops, to get to work, take the children to school, etc. So let's do it just carefully. Nick, very briefly, how do you carefully drill for oil? Well, it's a great question, um, and I will say that among the concerns of people in Nuixit are accidents and um, the closest. Oil project, which I'd mentioned, another ConocoPhillips project. It's called the Alpine Field, and um, it started about 20 years ago. And um, just a, a year or two ago, there was a huge gas leak at the project. So the company was drilling for oil, but there's there's gas mixed in down there, and um, gas started leaking out of the ground uh, in huge volumes to the point where. Um, workers were evacuated, and there were questions about whether people should be evacuated from Nuixit, which is a few miles away. Um, and ultimately, the, the company, I think they're still trying to work out what the problem was, but it, the company has said at least part of it was caused by melting permafrost, um, allowing the gas to leak through the ground. Um, and so people there have a lot of concerns that Willow won't be done carefully, even if they sort of follow all the rules and regulations. It's also important to note, I mean, yeah, most, I think it's probably fair to say that most oil wells are um, done without accidents, right, without spills or anything. But even when it's done properly, it's a dirty process. Um, And there's a lot of science that's shown that people who live near oil and gas wells uh, suffer health impacts. You know, they can have elevated rates of respiratory illnesses, or in some cases, even cancers have been found to be, you know, elevated near oil and gas development. So even when it's done safely, it's 
it's it can be dirty. We got this message from a member of our tax club who says, generally, I think we should scale back with an eye toward eliminating drilling. The problem is that Americans will consume what they are given to consume. Oil companies should diverge away from fossil fuels to renewables. They certainly have the resources to do it. We've got just a minute left here, and I want to put this conversation in the context of uh, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Uh, the report they released that looked at their research on global warming since 2015, and they warned that we're going to surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius. Nick, place this conversation in that context. Well, I mean, that's the important context that that's why we're we're talking about this, right? I mean, the the 1.5 degree target was adopted as part of the Paris Agreement, and it was adopted because it was a, a an amount of warming that scientists sort of agreed upon was uh, a threshold sort of if where if you go beyond that, um, the risks are much higher of, you know, greater sea level rise, more dangerous and extreme weather that can, you know, be really devastating around the globe. And so the science is also clear that if we continue to develop new oil and gas and burn fossil fuels at the same rate, we're going to blow right past that goal. That's Nicholas Kuznets. He's an oil and gas reporter at Inside Climate News. That's a nonprofit newsroom that covers climate, energy, and the environment. Also with us today, Joshua Rhodes. He's a research associate at the Weber Energy Group. That's a research group at the University of Texas at Austin. Nick, Joshua, thanks for being here. Today's show was produced by Jorgelina Manorea and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.